that David is getting at here is that he looked at himself as God had made him and said, you know what? There's no one else like me, probably for better and for worse. <laughs> that There's no one else like me with this mix of gifts, skills, and abilities. And of course, what David says here in Psalm 139, the scripture tells us elsewhere, is true for all of us. That it isn't that David is just unique, but what does the Bible say? But that we all have God's image impressed upon us, that we all have uniquely given skills and gifts and abilities that God has endowed us with. So what does this mean then? When we look at the person in the mirror, well, that means every day that when we look in the mirror, we're not looking at a superior form of animal life. But what does the Bible say? We're looking at an inferior form of divinity. That we're looking at someone who bears the very image of God. Psalm 8, another Psalm of David says what? That you, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, you have made us a little lower than the angels. That God has crowned us with glory and honor. And as marred as that may be by sin, the Scripture still tells us it's there. And so every day when we look in that mirror, we are seeing somebody who's blessed with the image of God, who has unique gifts, skills, and abilities that no one else has. And if you don't realize it, that makes a profound difference in very practical ways in your life. For one example, if you go to a job interview... It's a lot easier and a lot better if you can look a prospective employer in the eye and believe that you actually have skills and abilities that God has given you that can be put to use for others in this world. That actually helps. Of course, it also helps even in practical ways like peer pressure. You don't have to be like everyone else because God didn't make you to be just like everyone else. God made you to be you. It says there that God, it goes on in that psalm, to say that God handcrafted us while we were yet in our mother's womb. And so God did not make us on a mass production line, but God breathed into us the breath of life and gave us a uniqueness that comes from His handprint on us. The image of God rests on us, and it makes a big difference as we think about who we are in this world as it did for David. Of course, by the way, the reality is that we often spend most of our time chasing this feeling but in the wrong direction. In other words, we all want our blood to pump with that feeling that I am unique, I am set apart, I have unique gifts, skills, and attributes like no one else. But yet we seek it in different ways. We, we try to chase after a job, a body image, uh, uh, a certain perhaps net worth, all sorts of things in hope that once we get that thing, then people will finally see that we are unique and we are wonderful, that we are set apart and awe-inspiring. And Scripture says that that's chasing after the wind. That you were meant to have that feeling, but you were meant to have it as it relates to God, not other things. That as you look at how He has made you and constructed you, that is where you're supposed to get your sense that you are unique and wonderful and set apart. And to seek it in any other avenue is to seek it in vain. You know, I traveled to India a few years ago and got the privilege to know a pastor over there with whom I still enjoy relationship, Isaac Shaw, pastor in New Delhi, India. And Isaac Shaw was taking me around his country and showing me cultural life in India. And he was explaining to me, as many of you are probably familiar with, the Indian caste system. Some of you know that in India you're born into a certain social structure 
And at whatever level you're born into, that level you stay in for the rest of your life. It's part of your fate. And Isaac was explaining the caste system to me, pointing people out on the street as telling me what their caste was. And finally, my curiosity got the best of me, and I couldn't resist. And I looked at this godly Christian man, and I said, Isaac, what is your caste? So what caste were you born into? And he kind of face sobered up, got really serious really quick. And he says, I am not my caste. And he wouldn't tell me his caste. Because that was part of the former things. That was part of the old creation. Letting things other than God define him. That he lived in a society that was trying to tell him every day who he was and who he was only going to be. But yet, when he looked in the scripture and then looked in the mirror, he realized that that was not who he was. That scripture helped set his course straight. And of course, I hope and pray that that's true for all of us. That we have things telling us who we are or who we're supposed to be. But we go to scripture, and scripture reminds us that person you're looking at in the mirror is unique, set apart. There's no one else like you. God has uniquely and wonderfully made you to be who he has designed you to be. And so we all want that feeling. And Scripture says that it's from God that we were meant to get that feeling when we look in the mirror. So it's important that we keep Psalm 139, verse 14 in mind when we look in the mirror. But it's also important, moving on to the second thing we want to think about. How would, how would our belief in Psalm 139, 14 impact the way that we relate to and look at others? Relate to and look at others. In other words, if I truly believe that every person I lay my eyes on and interact with are uniquely and wonderfully made people by God, how would that change my interactions with them this week? That point was brought home to me on a trip to Portland, Oregon, where I visited as part of my work with the Chalmers Center here on Lookout Mountain, got to visit a ministry called the Julia West House that people had told me was the finest homeless ministry they'd come across the United States. So I, I made my way to downtown Portland to go see this homeless shelter. And I've been in homeless shelters plenty of times before. I have my stereotypes of what they're like. But when I went and met with the leadership of the Julia West House, one of the first things they told me is, we don't provide food or shelter to any of the homeless in Portland. And I thought, well, what do you do <laughs> exactly as a homeless shelter? <laughs> um, they said, we used to do that. That's all we used to do. People would line up, they'd come in, they'd get their food, a place to sleep, move on. They said, but we noticed something. They said there was no lasting change. The same people kept coming back over and over again, and we just got frustrated with it. We thought there has to be a better way. So they decided to go and actually visit some former clients and customers who they now knew had work and were sustaining their lives out in other parts of Portland to go visit them and say, what happened? How did you go from the homeless shelter to having your own life now and sustaining work? And so they did. They went out and surveyed these people, and they found a common thread that among all the responses they got, people said the things that led to our transformation were relationships, encouragement, and accountability, structured accountability. And so the Julia Westhouse said, you know what, we've been treating people wrong because they said we never knew the names of any of those people we were giving food to. They just came in the door, got their food, and left. And so now, today, if you go to the Julia West House, it's still there. And if you go to the Julia West House today, if you're a homeless person, to get in the door, the first thing you have to be able to do is to prove your first and last name, which is easy to do in America, actually, with IDs. And what they do is they make you a name tag. 
that you have to wear at all times around the shelter. And the idea here is to humanize people. That you have a name that somebody gave you. And that with that name is a story. And you probably have thousands of people that pass by you every day who don't know your name, who don't call you by your name. But we want to call you by your name. And so they do. And at the Julia West House, you always have to be in one of their programs, either taking a literacy course, a GED course, a job preparedness course, so on. But of course, their message to people, their message to the homeless is, you're not nameless faces in the crowd to us. We believe, it is a Christian ministry by the way, we believe you're uniquely and wonderfully made people. We believe you actually have gifts, skills, abilities, desires, and dreams of your own that for whatever reason you've not discovered. And we want to be part of that process. You know, what would it look like if we took that into our everyday life? From the people of Walmart that we run across to the people in our neighborhood schools and workplaces. That we thought these are not just faces in a crowd, these are uniquely, wonderfully made people. Because actually, I would say what, you, what we theologically believe about people does have profound impact on the way we treat them. If you want to see this, just look at Rwanda. Look at Rwanda. Many of you know 15, almost 20 years ago, a genocide came to Rwanda, uh, resulting in the death of 500,000 people. In 100 days, half a million people were slaughtered. But the story behind that genocide was when Christian missionaries, Danish Christian missionaries, came to Rwanda in the 1800s and began to teach something that you can only say is of the devil, and it was believed widely in America as well, which is that there are some people who are not uniquely and wonderfully made in our societies. That there are people who are unique and wonderful, and there are people who are not. And that these Christian missionaries taught, you need to figure out who those people are, and so they can be segregated from the general population. That was in the 1880s in Rwanda. You fast forward a hundred years later, and what do you have but a genocide? Because our theology, what we believe, actually plays out in life. It takes time often, but it does. It happens in Rwanda, but it happens every day for us. That what we really believe about people will really impact the way we treat them, talk to them, look at them. Especially the poor and the oppressed. You know, what we tend to do in our society, and I do it as guilty as anyone else, you know, we tend to look at people what, in terms of what they don't have. They, what, the kind of house they don't have, the kind of job they don't have, the kind of life they don't have, the kind of body they don't have. We look at people in terms of what they don't have. But notice what the Scripture forces us to do in this verse, is to look at people through what they do have, that they do have the image of God. They do have unique gifts, skills, and abilities that God has given them that perhaps they have yet to discover. You know, this may have actually been a very personal issue for David when he wrote this. Let's not forget his story. David was treated as that nameless kid who had no unique gifts, skills, and abilities. You remember the story of David? That when Israel needed a new king, Samuel was told to go and get the sons of Jesse and to parade them, and you'll figure out which one is king. I'll tell you which one is king. And what happens but Jesse parades his sons out, and after each son is introduced, he's told, it is not him, it is not him, it is not him. And then finally he's asked, do you have any other sons? 
And what we're told is he says, oh, the kid in the field. <laughs> that kid in the field. You know, he, we put him out there with the dumb, smelly animals because that's kind of where his giftedness is. <laughs> it's kind of the inference that is made that he's the kid that they've just forgotten about. And, of course, what happens is he's paraded in front and, and Samuel says, anoint him, for he is king of Israel. What is, and what does God tell Samuel in that passage in 1 Samuel 16? The Lord does not look at the outward appearances, but Jehovah looks at what is on the inside. Jehovah looks at the heart. Jehovah does not judge like men judge. And it's true for God, and it should be true for us, that if we could see people through God's eyes, no matter what we may see on the outside, if we could see through God's eyes, we would see people who are uniquely and wonderfully made, who have real potential and abilities. You know, I got to visit with a church in Memphis that was showing me uh, how they handle people who come to the church asking for financial assistance. And like many churches, this was a rather large church. Like many churches, they have a form because we know forms solve all problems and answer all questions. <laughs> so when people come to this church for financial assistance, they, they ask these people to fill out this form. And they were asking me for my opinion about this form, what I thought of it. And it was better than the average church, I will say. And, and I looked at this form and I said, I would just encourage you to add two to three questions along these lines. I said, I would ask things like, what are your dreams for your life over the next two years? What kind of skills do you have? Uh, what kind of work would you be doing today if you could create your own job? Things like that. And they said, why would we want to ask those questions? That's kind of the look I got coming back from them. I said, well, be, probably because they've never been asked that by any other church in your community. So they've never, they're not going around being asked about their dreams, their skills, and their desires for life. They're being asked, what are you going to do with this money, and will you ever come back here again? <laughs> it's, it's about all they're being asked. And I said, it changes the game, and it changes the game. And it's true for us when we look at people. Do we look at them in terms of what they don't have or our, our limit our interactions with them just to get them to move on? Or do we look at them in, through the lens of Psalm 139.14 as people who have gifts, skills, and abilities that God has uniquely given to them? Well, that brings us to the third thing we want to think about, and that is if we really believe Psalm 139.14, how does it impact our relationship with God? How does it impact our relationship with God? Well, David even tells us here, how does the verse start off? I praise you. I praise you. And then he goes on to say, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In other words, David says that the, as I look at my kingship, the role you've given me in this world, O oh God, the skills and abilities I've been able to put to use, I can take no credit for them. They come from you. They belong to you. They are to your glory. Wonderful is everything you've done. There's nothing praising David here about himself, but rather the end to which he looks at himself is the end to which he praises God and gives him adoration. I praise you, O oh God. You know, as as maybe you've been thinking along in this message, it may sound like that you could take this verse and it could lead to a kind of a self-centeredness. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, you could think it would maybe lead to narcissism of some sort. Um, but notice, that's not what happens in this psalm. That what happens is actually, it doesn't lead to self-centeredness. It leads to self-sacrifice and surrender. 
Because if you go down even past verse 16, the last words of David in this psalm is, Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me, O God. The God who made me, the God who's uniquely gifted me, now would you lead me in the way everlasting. And think about what's happening. David is saying, God, everything that I have, any good about me comes from you, and thus it belongs to you. It is not mine. It's yours. The skills, the gifts, and abilities I have are your gifts, your skills, and your abilities that you've given. They belong to you. Use them how you will. Use them how you will. And that should be the end result of us meditating on a verse like this, is to see all that God has given, how He's given it, but also to look at Him and say, it belongs to you. Do with it what you will. By the way, if you want the perfect picture of what it looks like to live out life through the lens of Psalm 139.14, just look at Jesus Christ, right? He, had a, he knew that He was specially called that he had a special calling on his life from God. When he looked at other people, he did not see them as just names and the faces in the crowd. But he, when he heard the voice of the blind man, he heard a unique voice with a unique desire. That when the lame and the crippled were brought before him, he didn't cast them aside as kind of useless to his purposes. But he saw people who needed to be restored to how God had made them. That when Jesus interacted with people, he looked at them through this lens. But also, of course... Jesus surrenders Himself to the Father's purposes. God, You've uniquely called me. God, I am Yours. Use me as You will, even for Jesus when it means the cross. Everything I have is Yours. Should be the end result of our meditation on this psalm. There's a story from church history that brings all this together for me. Uh, Many of you probably have heard of John Calvin. He's a well-known name among some. But John Calvin was the Protestant reformer in Switzerland. And many people don't realize, you know, that his ministry in Geneva didn't always go so well. That he was chased out of town at one point, uh, for the, and for his own safety, he kind of had to flee town. And during his exile, uh, he was gone for about two years. And towards the end of those two years, people who had stayed in Geneva, the Christians there, began to write to him and beg him to, come on back, it's okay now, come resume your ministry. And we actually have some of his letters preserved, his correspondence. And his response to those people is, no, never, never will I come back. It's pretty often his refrain, like, I'm done with you people. Until one day he gets this letter from an older gentleman in the church that he had a lot of respect for, who said, no, now is the time for you to return to Geneva and resume your ministry. And Calvin's response in this letter really cuts to the point. He says, had I the choice at my own disposal... Nothing would be less agreeable to me than to follow your advice. (laughs) That's a nice way to put it. But, he says, when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Calvin ends up returning to Geneva for the fruitful ministry we all know him for. But notice what he says there. These skills, this calling, none of it's my own. It belongs to God. And if he's calling me back to Geneva, who am I to say no? It all belongs to him. And in fact, the image on Calvin's shield that's been created in his legacy is of a heart in the hands lifted up that says, promptly and sincerely, I offer my heart to you. 
And would that be the result, just like it was for David, of our own meditation upon our relationship with God? God, everything I have comes from you. Everything I have belongs to you. Take it. Do with it what you will. You have fearfully and wonderfully made me, and you know my days from beginning to end more than I do. You know why you made me the way you did. You know why you put me where you put me when you put me on this earth. So do with me what you will. You have ordained all of my days. And this morning, as we think about this verse, I just want to propose that over the course of the next seven days, as we think about our life in this world, we're going to have to both repent and believe. (laughs) Because we're going to look at people in ways other than the way that we should look at them. And we're even going to look at the person in the mirror in ways that we shouldn't look at them. And we're going to have to repent. But also, we're going to have to believe. To believe, uh, perhaps when we're looking at our children, perhaps when we're looking at our spouse, uh, perhaps when we're looking at that annoying coworker, that this person is uniquely and wonderfully made in some way we can't see and appreciate. And that God will give us all the grace to perhaps help them discover how He has uniquely and wonderfully made them. But we will struggle in these areas. We often do. But these verses will lead us to repent and to walk by faith. And this morning, my encouragement to us is to take God at His Word. To take God at His Word. To not rely on our own perceptions, observations, and senses as we go around the world this week. But to look to the instrument panel of Scripture. To have one Psalm 139 verse 14 regulate our lives this week. And that the end result would be that we would praise God's name and surrender everything that we have to Him.